as human beings, we are emotionally and mentally wired to discuss things that are different, that are outside of a regular pattern, and ignore things that are average. So if you want to actually create word of mouth and get your customers talking, you can't just go about your regular business because same is lame. So you have to do one thing, at least one thing truly different that they will absolutely notice and then talk about. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode, the latest episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, for anyone that's been listening to the podcast for a while or who has heard me speak at all, you will know that I firmly believe that the days of outspending, outshouting, and out-interrupting our competitors is over. So what do I mean by that? I mean that if you want to stand out in a new age of influence, in an age where what gets talked about, what gets remembered, what, in the words of our next guest, is considered remarkable air quote fingers, enough to share within our networks, our social networks. It isn't business as usual, and it is certainly not marketing as usual. In fact, I think it was it was Robert Stevens, founder of Geek Squad, one of my all-time favorite founders, who said, the immortal words, advertising is a tax paid by the unremarkable. I love that quote. The challenge now is to not constantly interrupt what our target markets are interested in, but instead to become what they are interested in. To provide a service or information that is so valuable, so engaging, or so unexpected that word of mouth or word of mouse or word of Twitter literally takes care of itself. My my next guest Jay Bear, I have been trying to get for for a very long time. We've been going backwards and forwards, working out time zones, book launches. He is one of the world's leading authority on how to become what people are interested in. He would describe those moments, those indicators as talk triggers. A talk trigger being any strategic or operational differentiator that compels word of mouth. Now notice there. Notice the word strategic, not accidental, not hopeful, but an actual plan to create consistent and passionate word of mouth on behalf of your brand, idea or product. Now, it sounds simple, yet as he points out, nearly every organization has a social media strategy, a marketing strategy, a sales strategy. None, at least none that I am aware of and very few that he comes across, have a strategic plan for word of mouth. Now, that seems even more crazy when you consider that word of mouth has always been the backbone of of any successful business. However, in a digital landscape where voice search, Alexa, Google Home, reviews and algorithms all tie back to one thing, the sentiment of the crowd. So if you don't have a plan for word of mouth, physical or digital, you are genuinely missing out on what I would say is one of the biggest opportunities available to any business. Now, Jay has spent 25 years in digital marketing and customer experience consulting for more than 700 companies, including 34 of the Fortune 500. His current firm, Convince and Convert, provides word of mouth, digital marketing, and customer experience advice to some of the world's most important and revered brands. His blog, also called Convince and Convert, was named the world's number one content marketing blog by the Content Marketing Institute. Check it out. He is also the author of three best-selling books, including Utility, Why Smart Marketing is About Help and Not Hype, Hug Your Haters, and his latest book with co-author Daniel Lemon, Talk Triggers, The Complete Guide to Creating Customers with Word of Mouth. Now, it's, it's fair to say, genuinely fair to say, that Jay understands every aspect of what it is to build a brand around earned influence. And the great thing about earned influence, earned influence, if I'm saying that wrong, as opposed to hype 
or just amassing followers is it is really hard to lose once you have it. Now, warning about this conversation. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty rapid fire. It goes pretty fast. We went pretty fast and pretty hard. So grab a pen and a piece of paper now if you're in a position or a place where you can do so. Otherwise, buy the book Taught Triggers at a later date. Wholeheartedly recommend it. In this conversation, we sprint our way through. Why so many people, so many people confuse influence with audience and how spending money on an audience strategy is is like throwing money into a, a leaky bucket. Why relevance is the new killer app. Why contribution takes courage and the fears that will hold you back as a brand or as an individual. How to hardwire help over hype into your marketing strategy or tattoo it onto your brain. The four requirements to designing a compelling talk trigger. Why in this day and age, building a marketing campaign around earned influence shouldn't be the Wild West, but instead driven by data, AI, and machine learning. And finally, why real influence, bankable influence, impactful influence, game-changing influence, industry-driving influence is always earned and not bought. So sit back, grab yourself a cappuccino, if you're in Italy, I don't know, or just a cup of tea and enjoy the insights of one of the most experienced thought leaders we could have found on the planet when it comes to brand influence. Please enjoy my conversation with the outrageously talented Jay Bear. Welcome to the podcast, Jay Bear. Julie, delighted to be here. Thank you so much uh, for having me on the show. Let's talk about some influence. Let's let's jump straight into it. I'm going to kick off the podcast the way that I the way that I always kick off the podcast, which is to ask the question: Do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? And the reason I ask this question is because I believe that there's this myth. I keep hitting upon this myth out there that in order to be influential, in order to make an impact, in order to create change, get anyone to do any kind of an action, I first need to be an extrovert. That's that's the rule. So do you consider yourself introvert or extrovert? I'm definitely an extrovert, but I do not believe in that premise at all. Uh, some of the most influential people I've ever had the pleasure of interacting with are, are definitely introverts. I just happen to be an extrovert, and I guess it makes you a little less shy about um, interacting with people and creating content and such. But no, I certainly don't believe that it is a, uh, a requirement uh, to be an extrovert. You know, I'm lucky I get to spend a lot of time by myself as well, traveling, speaking, those kind of things. So uh, I, I do appreciate those times where it's just sort of me in a hotel room kind of gathering my thoughts or watching whatever ridiculous show I want to watch, etc. But but definitely an extrovert. And have you always identified with being an extrovert? Or is it a learned skill? Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't think anybody can learn to be an ex- extrovert. Like I, I very much steal energy from other people. My wife is an introvert. She, when she's around other people, it makes her tired. When I'm around other people, it, it makes me, um, it gives me energy. It makes me more excited. So I don't think you can learn it. Uh, and I've always been an extrovert. When I was uh, just a, a young child in primary school, I had to have a daily report card, daily marks sent home because I was so disruptive to the class. I was always talking and screwing around and like just making a ruckus that they had to send me home with a report card every day. And if I got a, a, a B letter grade or above, a B or an A, I was allowed to watch television. Uh, and if I got a C or below, my mother would not let me watch television at all. Uh, so yeah, I, I, this goes back to when I was uh, seven years old. You, you've said before that you don't think that we really understand what influence means. How do, how do you feel like we misunderstand that word? We, we often confuse influence and, and audience. So we, we assume that if somebody has the ability to reach a large number of people through, through any particular channel, that that person is therefore influential. To me, the definition of influence is the ability to to create a behavior, to change behavior. And just because you can reach a lot of people doesn't mean that you can change the behavior of those people. So so to me, influence is much more about action than it is about awareness. And I think we tend to confuse those a lot. Yeah, you've 
you've actually said, which I loved, I loved your definition of influence, the ability to cause behavior change among people within a target audience. And I specifically love that last bit, target audience. You you called your company Convince and Convert. What's the What's the most important thing you've learned so far about that second part, converting, converting people into taking action? Well, I, I, I think you, you kind of hit on it there a little bit um, a moment ago, that the, the likelihood of you driving behavior or, or converting in the popular parlance goes up significantly if you are hyper-relevant to a particular person or business's needs. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, I come from the marketing world, so we think of these issues a lot. Uh, I'll have a, a company that, that comes to, to me for help and they'll come to us and say, you know, we're making all this stuff, you know, we're making a podcast and we got a YouTube series, we got a big blog, whatever, but man, people just don't have time to, 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 to listen to it. They don't have time to download it. And that's never true. It's not about whether your audience has enough time because if you give somebody the information they need at the time that is um, most suitable for them and you do it in the format that they prefer, the time necessary to consume that, the time they need to listen to the podcast or read the blog or download the ebook or whatever is magically created. So when you don't have a tight enough target audience, what that means every time is that you are not relevant enough. And most people make the mistake in in influence of of not being as relevant as they could be because the net they are casting is too broad. So what's the first question you should ask yourself then? As a CEO, marketing exec, entrepreneur, you name it, when you're looking for that niche, when you want to nail that niche, what's the first question you should ask? Describe the person for whom you will be their favorite source of information in the world. Love that. Love that. And then once you've described that person, once you've described that person, you just talked about that, the lie that we all tell ourselves, you know, mm -hmm. too busy CEOs, they're too busy to read, listen, watch, you name it. It reminds me of, I was talking, I was talking to somebody from Google recently and he was talking to me about the Netflix effect that they've, they've noticed, which is, this myth that attention spans are dropping, and, and yes, they are dropping, but if you can get them, if you can get the right person in, they will then binge watch. You know, yeah, they'll binge watch, watch seven hours in a row. Yeah, and that's exactly what you're saying, that if you can find the right person and match it with the most relevant information, then they will download every ebook you have, listen to every podcast you produce. Yeah, the trick is you've got to know what those people are, and then you have to know what they need and then you just give them those things over and over. Uh, but, but, but most folks, they don't take the time to say, right, if, if I only had one person in my audience or one person I could influence, who exactly is that person? And until you know that, uh, the rest of it, you're kind of guessing. And you might be right from time to time, but it's sort of like firing bullets off into the air hoping a bird flies by simultaneously. Like, yeah, it might work, but it's not a super reliable strategy. <laughs> It's also not a fun way to spend a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> right. Trust me, I've tried. So, all right. So we've we've picked out that person. We've we've busted that myth that you know that person would be too busy. What's it, is the best way next to go out and ask them? What 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 are your main challenges? What are your main pain points? What are, what are the main questions you're asking in relation to the field that I work in? Is is the best way to ask or is the best way to go off and do your own research and come back? Uh, combination. So the way we do it in our, in our business is combination of, of interviews. So find people who are similar or the same as this very narrow, ideally narrow uh, group of, of targets, ask them some questions about what they need and also what they're consuming now, where, where, where and how are they influenced today? And then what we often do is combine that with some research on uh, Google. So what are people searching for? You know, what, what topics and terms are they searching for? And then also we do a lot of social media research. What are people talking about in social? So it becomes sort of a triangle, Julie, where it's a combination of actual interviews, search data, and social data. Uh, at least that's how, that's how we do it. And we take those three things and then mine it to say, 
uh, and how we start this process, we say, write down 50 questions. It's always 50. And it's actually better um, just because it, it makes you a little bit more thoughtful if you actually do it longhand with, with a pen and paper. Write down 50 questions that you want to answer for this target audience. That's a really good uh, process to get into. I actually just came across, weirdly, a mortgage broker last week who had set himself the challenge of 100. He was going to answer 100 questions in 100 days, and he had his sales team write down, okay, just write down the the top 10 questions that you get asked in a week. Yep. Got 100 and then set himself the challenge that he was going to record a video to answer each one, every one for 100 days. And the results that he got, I don't have the stats in front of me, but they were they were phenomenal compared to the other influence strategies that he had been attempting. Yeah, I mean, my, my first very popular book was called Utility, uh, Why Smart Marketers Focus on Help, Not Hype. And it's exactly that. It's, it's ultimately, if you want to break through, uh, just be helpful and useful. And, and eventually, um, the spotlight will shine back on you. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad you mentioned that because that was literally my, my next question. Um, in utility, you, you talk about creating marketing that is so useful that people would pay for it if you asked them. Mm-hmm. But you also said, which I thought was fascinating, you said that takes courage. It takes courage to give things away for free, to give your best stuff mm-hmm. out into the ether. Why? Why does that take courage? Two reasons. One, in most cases, if you pursue a utility strategy, which is spelled Y-O-U, utility, um, for listeners, if you pursue a utility strategy where you're valuing um, help instead of hype, in many cases, it takes uh, longer for that to turn into customers. It's more reliable and it works better, but uh, most people are not going to watch one video from a mortgage broker and be like, okay, you know, you're my guy. Uh, it, it takes longer for, for the sales process to germinate. And frankly, a lot of influencers and businesses don't have the patience to pursue that strategy. Um, the second thing that gets in the way, particularly in professional services, uh, is is that individuals are concerned, and I've heard this, I don't even know how many times, hundreds, uh, that that if they uh, give away what they know, in the form of a free video or a blog or a podcast, what have you, that then there's no reason uh, for customers to hire them because that you've told them all the things. That's not actually true, though. It's it's just being scared. Uh, the reality is is that you want to give away information snacks to be able to sell knowledge meals. And this idea that somehow you have a secret sauce that you couldn't possibly talk about on a podcast because then everybody would know the answer is totally untrue. Nobody has a secret sauce. Like your proprietary process for doing public relations or whatever, it's crap. Everybody, like there's nobody has a secret sauce, right? So yeah, I'm laughing because it's, it, that is so true. And it, yet we yeah, all believe it, myself included, to a certain no, degree. It just, it, it's just, it's not true. So uh, you're, you're better off giving everything away uh, one bite at a time. And look, the reality is this. A list of ingredients doesn't make somebody a chef. So if you're going to make 100 videos about mortgage broking, brokering, um, people will consume that. But that doesn't mean they can do it themselves. And maybe... Yeah, maybe there's a handful of people out there who are like, oh, I could do it myself now. Uh, But that's not the norm. And frankly, those people will never be your customer anyway, because they're predisposed to DIY. If I could tell you a story real quick. Um, I wrote a book called Utility for Real Estate uh, a few years ago, which is the same principles of helpful marketing applied only to the real estate industry. One of the case studies in that book is my friend Joe Manessa. Joe's a realtor in uh, Tallahassee, Florida in the States. But he's a little different because he uh, only represents uh, sellers of homes. If you want to buy a house, he doesn't do that. He only represents sellers. And he only represents sellers who have a home between 200000 and 400000 US dollars. So again, very smart about targeting. Small segment. Ta-da. Now, in that segment, it is very common that you have a home that does not have a lot of equity in it. It's fairly low priced. And so what is very common is that people think, well, yes, I could hire a a real estate uh, broker uh, and help me sell this home, or or I could try to sell it myself. 
because if I can successfully sell it myself, I do not have to pay the 6% commission to the real estate broker, and I could really use that 6%. Now, what almost every realtor does in America is builds a website that says approximately these things. The, the, the words may be in a different order, but it says, for all intents and purposes, behold the awesome power of my expertise. I've been doing this for many, many years. I know things about real estate that you could never possibly know. Do not try this yourself. You must use a professional like me. My buddy Joe does it the exact opposite. He sat down and wrote a 63-page downloadable PDF document called How to Sell a Home on Your Own in Florida. And it's exactly that, Julie, step by step by step by step, exactly what to do, the forms to fill out, who to call. So I interviewed Joe for this book, Utility for Real Estate. I said, Joe, man, I don't really understand this because it seems to me like you are giving people all the stuff they need to not hire you. And he said, Jay, I understand why you might think that. But what you also don't understand is that people download this and they get to about page 19 and they realize, wow, it is much harder to sell a home on my own than I expected. I do not want to do this. I am going to call Joe. It is his number one source of customers. And it's because A, tight target. B, focuses on helpfulness. C, gives everything away that he knows. Anybody can do that, but most people are afraid to. I, th I think, you know, one of the things that you just said there is, is, well, everything you said there is true, but something to really pay attention to is that the ones that you lose, the ones that go off, take your information, do it for themselves, they were never going to be your customers. That's it. They were never going That's to it. be. Now, what are you worried about? You, you know, if, 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 they're, if, if their decision-making process is do it myself or hire you, they will never be a good customer because they, don't, they already don't value you. You're reminding me back probably about 10 years ago in the, in the early days, my, my background is the speaking industry. And I had a management company with, with speakers all over the world. And I remember the battles in the early days of whether speakers' videos should go online. And there was a clear cut down the middle. There was those that said, no, I don't want I my speeches. Yeah, I don't want my speeches online. I possibly want somebody to see my speech? So they don't have to come see me. They don't have to come see me. They'll just play the video. Or, or somebody will steal my stuff. And those yeah. that really, really embraced it. And those that embraced it just jumped quantum leaps ahead because anybody could find them. They could watch their stuff. They could fall in love with them. They fall in love with their energy. I was watching, I'm in a hotel room today. I'm watching your keynotes, you know, sat in, in a hotel room. The reach that you get by giving it away is 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 incredible as opposed to, no, you have to come find me. Come find me and then I'll well, tell you more. And look, if if somebody can get the same experience watching your speech on YouTube that they can get watching you live, you need to be a better speaker. <laughs> there, Yeah, that is true. That is very true. Right. I mean, if it's – I mean <laughs> – that's like saying, you know what? Hey, check this out. I watched this uh, video of uh, of you two, uh, and uh, yeah, I don't I don't ever need to see them again, right? I mean, you know, also, if, if it's not I've, an experience, like, what are you doing? I've also never seen you know a conference of five hundred people where they put a YouTube video up for an hour on the right. on the big screens. You know, It'd save a lot of save a lot of save a lot of costs. It would save uh, a lot of costs. I don't think that yeah. that conference would possibly happen yeah. again the next year. Yeah. So you've said that um, you've said that. There are only two ways to succeed in marketing and communication today, to be disproportionately emotional or to be massively relevant. Now, the first one, disproportionately emotional, you know, that's really hard to continually replicate. You know, charities, we've seen that they struggle getting the same emotional response over and over again because, yep. you know, naturally we downgrade our response as, as we see the same images, the, the sure. same emotional bar. So let's go straight to the second what what does massively relevant actually look like? And if, do you have any examples from your own business where you've where you've executed that kind of campaign and it's had incredible results? Yeah, it kind of goes back to the example with Joe. Uh, if if you are thinking about selling a home on your own, and here is everything you need to know <laughs> on how to do that. That that is literally as relevant as you could possibly be. There is no additional relevance that could be added to that, uh, and and we try to do that at at convince and convert as well. I have a podcast called Social Pros, 
which I've been doing for nine years. Or I just recorded episode 365 a few minutes ago. Thanks. And and it's a show about big company social media for big company social media managers, which also happens to be the clients that we serve, at least in, in part. And and so it's it's got a large audience, but not nearly as large of an audience as it could have if the show was about social media just in general. But it's not. It's about how to manage social media programs if you were operating in a pretty large company environment. So we purposely bring in the borders of the audience to make it more relevant, right? And so we just continue to mine that well, you know, year after year after year after year and say, okay, who can we bring on the show as a guest? Who can who can talk about problems that we know large company social media managers uh, face? So let's move to talk triggers, which I loved. Thanks. Um, no, I really did. I think that I think that everything that you that you wrote in that book is is a hundred percent spot on from a from an influence perspective, but also, and we'll talk about this a little bit more going forwards from a from a future trends perspective, when you look at where things are going, algorithms, voice search, I think that everything that you've said in this book is just going to amplify even more in the next in the next few years. So go out and, and buy it and read it, anybody that hasn't. You said that there's a saying in business, I don't think it's your saying, but there is one in business that you like, which is advertising is a tax paid by the unremarkable. Walk me through. I mean, I know why I love it. Walk me through why you love that that statement. That it's from Robert Stevens, who was the founder of Geek Squad, which is the services arm of the large American uh, electronics retailer Best Buy. Robert's a really smart guy, and and his his premise, and, and the book backs this up in many ways, is that the best way to grow any business is for your customers to grow it for you. That if you don't have to advertise, it's because your customers are so enthralled in some way with what you're offering. The customer experience is differentiated enough that they go out of their way to tell other people about you, which then solves your customer acquisition problems in large measure. Uh, and then you can just focus on service, which, of course, saves you a tremendous amount of money. Uh, and and that really is, I think, the the holy grail in a lot of ways. It's, you know, people ask me like, geez, you know, you've been in digital for, you know, since almost 30 years, since 93 uh, why would you write a book about, about word of mouth? That seems so non-technical for you. And I said, yeah, it's because the pendulum's swinging back the other way. I mean, companies and, and individuals are getting tired of, of all the technology and algorithms and being beholden to giant companies and, uh, all the data. It's just, it gets, it gets frustrating. And, and I think we're starting to see a renewed focus on, well, what if we just connect with people in an authentic, honest way and do something that customers then want to talk about? They, they want to to tell your story to others. And, um, you know, what we try to do in the book, Daniel Lemon and, and I, my co-author, is give people an actual system, you know, a, a, a program that they can follow to create a differentiated customer experience that causes conversations. And when you can do that, and there's lots of case studies in the book about this, when you can differentiate your experience so much that customers want to tell people about it, it will save you a lot of money in advertising. Uh, and, and in some cases, your advertising expenses can go down to zero, which is a, a good place to be. It's a fantastic place to be. Um, you know, 91% of decisions are made now as a result of word of mouth. We trust, I think the stats are that Trust in brands is 35%. Trust in individuals, 65%. But you've said, you know, no one has a strategy for this, which in my experience is, is wholly true. Yeah. Nobody has a strategy for word of mouth. We have social media strategies, marketing strategies, sales strategies, you know, strategies on anything you can imagine. But no word of mouth strategy, which when you say it out loud, it just seems mind-blowing. Why is it usually ignored at a, at a strategic level within an organization, however big or small? Two reasons. One is that we tend to assume that word of mouth will occur naturally without any plan or focus. And what we assume is that competency will create conversation. That if we just run a business where where everything is executed properly, that customers will then talk about that. But that's not actually how people behave. 
I don't know all your listeners. I probably know a few, but I know this to be true. Nobody listening ever says and has ever said, hey, let me tell you about this perfectly adequate experience I just had. Like nobody says that because that's not a story worth telling and it's not a story worth listening to. Some of this is just physiology. As human beings, we are wired. We are emotionally and mentally wired to discuss things that are different, that are outside of a regular pattern and ignore things that are average, things that are inside a regular pattern. So if you want to actually create word of mouth and get your customers talking, you can't just go about your regular business because same is lame. Look, the more you try to fit in, the more your customers will, will tune out. So you have to do one thing, at least one thing truly different that they will absolutely notice and then talk about. We can't just rely on, yeah, you know, everything's good, no mistakes, because that's not worthy of conversation. The other reason why there's not enough focus on word of mouth as a, strate- as a strategy or as really a marketing discipline these days uh, is, is that it is, in some cases, more difficult to measure than other forms of marketing because it is at least 50% offline and, and it's hard to put math around that, right? The same way you can put math around email or social or, uh, or, or um, search marketing or what have you. So, so the, the, the difficulty of measurement uh, causes people to say, ah, it's too much work. We're not going to worry about it. Yet, they'll go out and spend however much money to put your logo on golf balls and not worry about the ROI on that which is kind of a puzzle. Uh, so those are the, 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 the two big reasons. And, and hopefully we can uh, change some thinking about that. Again, I'm, I'm laughing because the, the brand, the logo on a golf ball, I think it's the, I think it's an emotional thing. I think it's the, we get an immediate sense of accomplishment having seen, you know, there's my brand. We get the yeah. same immediate sense of accomplishment when we see it. You see analytics from social, it's tangible, however effective it might be. I think we can get caught up in that. It's tangible, therefore it must be the best. It must be the best strategy. And some cases, yeah. some cases that is. The you've said, sing, you know, word of mouth and cultivating word of mouth as an influence strategy is the single greatest opportunity since electricity. Which big statement, however. I think, again, if you look at some of these stats, there's there's a lot of concrete in that. So let's start here. What is, what is a talk trigger? Let's just go real basic. What is a, a talk, talk trigger? trigger it's, a, it's a strategic customer experience differentiator designed to create conversations, right? So it's a choice that you make in the operations of your business that you make so that customers will notice it and talk about it. That becomes the story that they tell about your business. Or about you. It works for people as well. So it's essentially a story-worthy moment, a moment you yep. deliberately create that is worthy of a story that somebody will tell on your behalf. It's not always a moment. It's it's you know it 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 could be um, something that that um, you know is shipped in your box that, that you are if you're an e-commerce company. But yeah, there's some sort of inner intersection with the business that uh, that is outside the customer's expectations, and that's a lot of what makes word of mouth strategy effective is that customers don't expect if they see it coming, uh, it, it doesn't usually work as well because they're no longer surprised. They're no longer like, Oh, that's neat. Uh, they're like, Oh yeah, I got that last time. So let's talk about what designing a talk trigger. So mm-hmm. there's probably going to be a lot of people listening and going, okay, my business needs a, a talk trigger. How do they're I right. go about designing? With- <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Tick in box. Next step. Yep. Um, you've said that there are four requirements. Mm-hmm. Form requirements when you go about designing a talk trigger. So, so what's the first? Yeah. And, and this is the part that I think is important about the book as well. Like there's a lot of good books out there about word of mouth. Uh, many of them, friends of ours and people who we cited and, and have quotes in our book, uh, but not disparaging any of them because they're great, terrific thought leaders and excellent authors and speakers. But fundamentally, all the books about word of mouth that came before ours basically say word of mouth is important. You should get some. I'm like, yeah, you're right. But then everybody sort of sets the book aside and goes about their day. What we tried to do in this book is is say, word of mouth is important, you should get some, and then give people an actual framework for doing it. So the book is set up in a four, five, six system where it's four talk triggers requirements, five types of talk triggers, and then a six-step process uh, for creating a talk trigger, which we probably won't have time to get into that much detail. But the four, five, six system makes it a lot easier to say, oh, yes, we need to do this. Here's actually 
actually how to do it. And that system was is based on how we actually do word of mouth strategy for our clients at Convince and Convert. So it's all road tested uh, and and proven. So it's not as if uh, my co-author Daniel and I, you know, invented the idea that word of mouth is important, but we did provide a, a step-by-step kind of framework for doing it, which uh, I think will be really helpful and and will probably stand the test of time, at least uh, I think so. So to your question, uh, for talk triggers requirements, because not everything you come up with can can work as a talk trigger. Uh, it has to kind of be specific uh, in some ways, because what you want is is not a stunt, right? This isn't a, this isn't like a, you know, let's rent an elephant and put it in the showroom. Like people freak out about that. It's not that, right? This isn't a one-time deal. Talk triggers are, are, are intended to, to be in place every day forever, or at least until it no longer works such that you create word of mouth amongst your customers every day, week, month, quarter, year, right? It just, it, it's a flywheel. Um, so in order to meet that, that test, it's got to have these things it's got to be remarkable. It's the first one. Uh, Seth Godin kind of coined that idea that that it has to be worthy of remark, a story worth telling. Uh, and so that's non-negotiable, right? If it's something that customers have seen a million times, they're not going to talk about it. It's just, not interesting or novel to them. I want to I want to just interrupt you just there because I think that, and you might have been about to go here anyway, that question of what is remarkable. As when I was listening to you, when I was listening to you speak and I was doing my research before before this interview, that one really grabbed me because I think that that's, that's a tricky one. I was having a conversation with a friend last week about this very thing and he said, you know, we're, we live in this five-star culture. We, we get out of an mm-hmm. Uber and if it was okay, we give it five stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was like – so, more gamification by Uber but yes. I'm yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if we're, if we're so used to giving, you know, oh, that, was, that, was, that was great. It was amazing. Five stars, off, off we go to something that is not remarkable. How do we go about – understanding how to design something that would be remarkable. If I'm sat here going, I don't even know what remarkable would look like for me. Yeah. A couple of things. One, um, the worst way to, and I mean, for real, the worst way, um, to create a talk trigger is, is the way that everybody tries to do it, which is to brainstorm it, to say what would be remarkable. Uh, and, and then you typically end up with a poor outcome because you don't know. Uh, number one, the thing that might be remarkable to you may not be remarkable to your customers. And number two, you typically don't know customers as well as you think you do. So one of the things that we get into in the process part of the book is that you must interview customers. You cannot do this unless you actually talk to real customers. We have a whole system for who to talk to and how many and when and whatever. Uh, but but the idea is you don't really know what they are going to find surprising. And so you've got to map your customer journey. First thing you do, map customer journey, then talk to your customers. And so when you interview customers, you say things like this. Um, when we sent you a proposal, what did you expect would happen? When, when you do these customer interviews, you're not looking for a value judgment. You're looking for an expectation map. What did you think would happen? So I'll give you an example. Uh, in business to business, like my industry consulting, you send people proposals all the time. Uh, and when you interview customers, you would say, what do you expect? So, well, I expected that you would send me an email and there'd be a PDF of a proposal attached. That's pretty perfunctory and normal in this business. Knowing that, once you start to work on what your talk trigger could be, you've identified as part of the process that proposal delivery is a key inflection point in the customer journey. Knowing that, you say, okay, we think that maybe we could launch a talk trigger at proposal delivery because that's a big kind of um, inflection point. What do they expect? Well, they expect us to email a PDF. Well, okay, if that's all they expect, what if instead – um, we took the proposal and went to one of those companies that can do custom frosting. And we, we created a sheet cake, you know, one of the large uh, cakes. And on the cover of the cake, the, the frosting, we, we put the you know, front of the proposal in, in icing. And then we took the actual proposal, we printed it out, put it in a plastic sleeve, and then put that under the cake, such that, Julie, in order to access your proposal, your prospective customer had to eat an entire cake. Now, would that be expected? It would not. Would that create conversation? It most definitely would. But you never get there unless, A, you've mapped the customer journey, and B, you know what they expect. Because once you know what they expect, you by definition know what they do not expect. And the gold in the river, the talk trigger, is always located in the place they do not expect it to be. And that's you know, that's brilliant on a couple of levels. One is having an expectation map. You can- you can see whether you're just basically even meeting expectations for a start. And yeah. then the the gap that comes after that, 
basic, basic expectation. Um, I sold a house recently and I went in to pick up, or to, to hand over the keys of the house that I had sold. And the real estate agent who I, I had just paid, I don't know how much to, to sell the house on my behalf, handed me a bottle of champagne. Now, I'm sure that they hoped that that would be remarkable. But, you know, as it turns out, grab the bottle of champagne. I'm pregnant, so yeah, <laughs> going to hand it to my poor husband anyway. Poor yeah. research on their part, um, which they knew because having spent a bit of time with me. Right. But also it's so perfunctory now. I expected yes. to be given something yes. like a bottle of wine, a bottle of champagne. Yes. Yes. It's funny you say that. We're working with a, a customer right now on the consultant side of our business that is a uh, owner operator of a great number of apartment complexes and multifamily residences, et cetera. Same project. So we're doing a lot of customer interviews and customer journey mapping. And it's funny you say that exact example because somebody mentioned, hey, we could give them a bottle of champagne, et cetera. We're not doing that. I'll t- I won't tell you the business, but I'll tell you what we're doing. Um, we are, uh, we, they're a company that is a great lover and supporter of the arts. So they are patrons of a, a number of different artists and a, different, a bunch of different mediums throughout all the communities in which they operate. They're in five or six cities in the U.S. And so what we did was we uh, got high-res photos of, I think it's three or five, doesn't matter, of the art pieces that they really treasure that are really nice. Then we set up a system, a dropship system, uh, where new move-in residents can can pick uh, a, a piece of art and then pick how they want it to be applied. And it can either be um, a, a regular framed print that you'd put on the wall or a throw pillow or, and this is my favorite, a shower curtain. So before you move in, uh, like two days before, you get to you get a little survey. Which piece do you want, and how do you want it executed? And then when you move in, it's already there. Shower curtains already hung up. Piece of art's already on the wall. Throw pillows in the corner. Uh, so that's that's what we're working on, and uh, we're super excited about that one. Oh, I love I love that for for any real estate agents out there as well, also who are looking for a gift for the the person who has sold the property. That moment when you're moving out, when you're trying to pack, send over some cleaners. Send over some, I don't know, some boxes. Yeah, boxes. Send, boxes. Send food. You know, you're trying to you're yeah. trying to juggle small children yeah. or large children, and you're moving house. You don't, you don't have time. Plus, you don't want to mess up the kitchen. Right. Send food. Send babysitters. Send cleaners. Send something. And I would remark. I would remark on that. But anyway, neither of us are going to start a real estate agency anytime soon. So not anytime soon. That's the that's the first one. It has to be remarkable. Second one. Uh, repeatable. So one of the things that's very common in marketing today is this idea of surprise and delight, where you purposely take one customer in a particular circumstance and you treat them much different or better than other customers because you hope that they'll create some content, maybe in social, and it'll go viral and the TV news will call or what have you. Um, So hotels do this a lot, right? So some guy uh, checks into the hotel and in the corner, there's like a live panda bear and a eucalyptus tree for it to eat. He's like, oh my God, there's a bear in my room and puts it on Facebook and then everybody shares it and, you know. That might work, uh, or maybe you've just wasted your money on panda rental. Uh, I don't know, but but either way, it's not a strategy, right? That's a lottery ticket. That that is that is hope, not a strategy. And I'm not into hope. I'm into strategy. So so what we want is a talk trigger that is made available to every customer or prospective customer, depending on what you choose, uh, and and that it it gives you that word of mouth opportunity forever, not just one time, one person. Repeatable is the best way to do it. And you talked about, um, I think it was Hilton Hotels, and the the cookie strategy that they used. Yeah, Double uh, Double Tree, yes, Double which Tree. is one of the one of the brands inside the Hilton portfolio. They've been doing this uh, for thirty years. <laughs> Talking about a, a, a successful talk trigger, thirty years. So uh, all the Double Tree hotels have an actual oven in them behind the front desk, and what happens is when you come to the Double Tree and check in. Uh, the front desk clerk goes and and gets a cookie out of the oven, puts it in a, a paper sleeve, and then hands it to you. And it's a delicious cookie. You know, is it the best cookie I've ever had? Probably not, but it's an extraordinarily good cookie in terms of cookies given to me for free by a hotel chain. And and people don't accept. No other hotels do it, uh, at least uh, that we're aware of. And it has a huge impact. So much so that we did a research project on this exact same point and surveyed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Doubletree guests. And we found, Julie, that 34% of their guests have told a story about this cookie. 34%. Each day, today, tomorrow, yesterday, 
they give out approximately 75,000 cookies a day. 34% of the recipients have told a story about it, which means, do the math on this, 22,500 stories a day are told about the cookie. Side note, they spend almost nothing on advertising, even though they're a very large hotel brand, because the cookie is the ad and the guests are the marketing department. But it's repeatable. It's not just it's not just you don't have to be in the in the loyalty club to get a cookie or it's not just ladies or it's not just on your birthday or not just on Saturdays. It's every customer every time. And I have stayed. I have stayed at that hotel chain and enjoyed the cookie and told that story many, many times, many times myself. Um, which again, go, but which again goes back to you know, if somebody had mentioned that to me in a marketing meeting, if I worked for that company, we should give everybody a cookie. It wouldn't have felt that remarkable. But it's right. the fact, as you said, mapping it out, mapping the expectations, that it is so beyond what you expect for somebody to turn around, open an oven, and give you a warm, fresh cookie, especially after a long journey, that makes it that makes it remarkable. So that that leads on nicely to the third one which is it needs to be reasonable, not so grand yeah. a gesture, like you said, a panda in the room, which would just be terrifying, yes. by the way. Yes. Um, too grand a gesture creates, you said, it creates suspicion. It's it, it's mm-hmm. not reasonable. Yeah, and, and we fall into this trap a lot in business. I find it more so in B2B than B2C. I think because the value of a purchase is so high, uh, they tend to say, well, you know, competition's tough. It's hard to get attention. So what we're going to do is shock people into giving us attention by doing something really, really big. We're going to have a contest and everybody's going to put their business card in a fishbowl and then we're going to pull one out and somebody's going to win a car or an island or something crazy like that. Uh, and, and it seems so giant, so disproportionate to the circumstances uh, and, and customers don't actually tell those stories. You know, you expect that they would because it's so big, but the opposite occurs. When, when people interact with a business and the experience is too grand, um, the story doesn't get told because they're not trusting it. They're like, wait, there's a catch here or there's, you know, I must have to buy something first or, or whatever um, the circumstances are. And, and so you actually stop conversation instead of start it. And so what you want is a, a talk trigger, an operational differentiator that is different enough to be remarkable, a story worth telling but not so big that people don't trust it because then it becomes a story that you don't want to tell. Classic example of that, I think, would be um, timeshare. You know, when you get sure. st- stopped by somebody, they say, would you like sure. a free ho- free weekend in a hotel? And you know that that free, ho- that free weekend would be amazing and, yep. and that they would only yep. require two hours of your time. And you know that's true too. But you're also suspicious that the pain of that two hours. Right. It's going to be a tough two hours. It would, would almost make the whole, the whole weekend. I'd rather just pay yeah. for a weekend in a hotel. I don't, know that, I don't know that I've ever had somebody tell me, guess what? You know, I only spent two hours and I got a free weekend. Like, I, you know, nobody, you know, other than negative word of mouth, like, let me tell you about how painful these two hours so were. So true. Uh, and, and that's a great example. I've never thought of that example, but it's perfect. I'm going to steal it. Thank you. You you are you're welcome to it. It's 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 my it's my um, remarkable gift for you today. Thank you. Um, so last one, relevancy. Talk to me. Talk to me about relevancy. Yeah, we we talked about relevancy earlier. Uh, word of mouth works best when it's congruent with who you are or or what you're about. We'll go back to the DoubleTree. Um, yeah, the cookie seems a little weird. And you're like, well, geez, how is that relevant? Any any business could you know give you cookies. Well. There's 14 hotel brands in the Hilton hotel portfolio. You have the Conrad at the high end, the regular Hilton, Doubletree, Hilton Garden Inn, Hampton Inn. There's a bunch of them. Each of them have their own brand positioning because they don't want to be competing against one another for the same traveler because that's very inefficient, of course. So as much as possible, they want to kind of have their own lane and stay in it. Um, Doubletree's brand positioning is the warm welcome. The warm welcome. Uh, what they want to do is own that you know seven eight minute process between when you set foot on property and when you set foot in your room. They want to be really really good at that. So as a result, uh, they spend more time, money, effort on lobby design than most hotels at that price point, and they spend more time, money, effort on front desk clerk training than most hotels at that price point. 
And the cookie ceremony, and it is a ceremony, is a big part of that because they, it's not just a pile of cookies on the counter. They literally do turn to the oven and then hand it to you. It must be a hand-to-hand pass. That's the brand standard. It's like a, like a Japanese tea ceremony, but fattening because it's an American company. And that's the deal. Warm welcome, warm cookie. See, it all, it all makes sense. If you go to Doubletree and, and they give you, uh, you know, a box, of, uh, a box of screws, you're like, oh, that's weird. You know, you might talk about it, but it, you wouldn't talk about it over and over because it's too weird. So the best talk triggers are those that make sense in the context of who you are and what you stand for. You also use this beautiful example of a locksmith. I think it was in New York City. Yeah. Jay Sofer. Yeah, yeah with the best Jay haircut Sofer. in the world. Anyone wants to yes. check that yes. out? Yes, he, he he does. He is, he is the sexiest locksmith there is. I'm willing to go out on a limb on, and say that. He is a heartthrob uh, locksmith, and he does free security audits. So once he finishes doing your locks, he, he looks at all your doors and windows and makes sure that there there's no threat of break-in. In New York City, that's probably a wise idea, and he does all that for free. That's his talk trigger, and he's now uh, the most popular and, and highest-rated locksmith in, in New York. But uh, let me ask you this. Think about, talk about relevancy. What if those two stories were reversed? right? So So what if Jay Sofer finishes your locks, uh, and, and then says, uh, Hey, uh, before I go, Julie, um, listen, how would you like a, uh, a warm chocolate chip cookie that I made in my locksmith van? <laughs> you would say, I, I do not want that, uh, at all. And how did you make a cookie in your locksmith van? Uh, that's not a talk trigger that is relevant. It would be too weird. Same thing. If you go to Doubletree and they say, Julie, before you get to your room, Hey, would you like us to do a thorough security audit of your hotel room? You would say, if that's necessary, I would like to check out now, please, and a full refund. So each of those work, but they work for that business. If you reverse them, wouldn't work at all. You said that he's the most he's the most um, highly rated locksmith in New yeah, York City on Yelp. On Yelp. Yeah. So I just want to segue into into that for a second. Just from a, let's take a, a future lens on everything that we're talking about here. So we've got that word of mouth is you know. At this day, currently, the most powerful strategy that you can develop for your business. And, and mm-hmm. I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly believe that, especially if you are just starting out, but equally if you're a large conglomerate. But I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about online just for, for, for one second. Sure. You've also said that building a marketing campaign around earned influence shouldn't be the Wild West. It should be driven by data, AI, machine learning, optimization, We've talked about some of the data that that you collect, and it it made me think about a conversation I had with an executive very high up in a digital company recently about review systems, online review systems, online rating systems. We've all seen them: TripAdvisor, Yelp. Mm-hmm. You know that they're becoming mm-hmm. more and more prolific in every area, and algorithms are pushing more and more towards them now for for rankings, for for Google search rankings, and then you take that another level where. Two or three years from now, the majority of search that we will do will be via a voice mechanism, something like mm-hmm. Siri, Google Home, um, Alexa. Yep. Now, if I say to a voice search mechanism such as such as Google Home, tell me the best locksmith in New York City, right? If I put it in Google right now, it would come up with 10 that I'd have to look through. But right. Alexa would just give me one. That's right. And if Yelp is its primary source of information then that's the only one I'm going to hear about. That's it. So here's the question. Should, as organizations, individuals, should driving customers towards online reviews be an immediate focus? Bear in mind where all of this is going. Yeah, it should have been immediate focus two years ago. <laughs> I wrote a whole book about this. Uh, I wrote a book about this called Hug Your Haters, which is all about social customer service and the power of ratings and reviews. And not only uh, is it important because um, voice services are only going to give you one instead of 10, but even today, uh, Google uh, puts a huge amount of stock on review velocity and review scores. So quite literally, they will change your search ranking based on how often you get new reviews. Uh, and, and that's uh, no joke, not to mention the fact uh, that reviews have a tremendous psychological impact on prospective customers uh, and a material impact on on conversion rate, footfalls, and a number of other tactics. So, uh, you know, unless you're in a business, you know, like mine, where I'm not going to ask, you know, a, a corporation to give me a, a review of our 
strategic plan that is a little weird, at least today. Um, but if you have any kind of, of business that has, you know, a large number of customers and things like that, yeah, reviews ought to be a huge priority. And when it comes to priority, are we talking about literally, I mean, let's just get practical, literally sending out an email after every after yes. every interaction? Would you mind reviewing us? Do you incentivize? What's the best way you no. found to do that? No. Okay. Um, you should not incentivize. A new study just came out that says that uh, material incentives for providing a review actually have a negative impact on review completion. Uh, people, when you incentivize them, are less likely to provide a review uh, because they feel like they're being bought and nobody wants to be a transaction when they are uh, recommending a business. So you don't want to incentivize, in my estimation, but you definitely want to ask. Um, I would not, if you can help it, I wouldn't do it via email because email, uh, people check it less frequently than ever and it's kind of a soft mechanism, easy to get lost to, spam filters, etc. If you can do it via text, um, SMS or, or even depending on where you are in the world, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, WeChat, that's the best way to do it if you can. Uh, well, I guess the very best way to do it, it's a little harder, but the very, very best way to do it is face-to-face, uh, is when a person, a human being in your organization says, hey, thanks very much for being a customer. Before you go, obviously this requires a physical location, before you go, uh, would would love you to take the take a minute to uh, review us uh, on whatever site makes sense. Uh, let me tell you a story about that. Um, so every year, my my team and I uh, go to Mexico, and that's our annual strategic planning meeting. Take the take the team, take their spouses. Every year, we go to this restaurant in Puerto Vallarta called La Cliff. It is on a cliff, and it has no uh, walls, uh, only a palapa. And gorgeous, gorgeous place right on the water. Really cool. Well, we were there, I guess it was maybe two or three years ago. And we're all there, have this big sumptuous kind of meal. Congratulations. Looking forward to a great year, blah, blah, blah. Finish the meal. A waiter comes up and says, really been great to have you here. Convince and convert. Terrific. Um, just want to tell you something that, you know, as you can see, we don't, we don't have any walls here. Uh, and in the summer, it gets quite warm here in Puerto Vallarta. So the restaurant is closed. We are closed for the months of, of uh, July, August, and September. I don't get paid for those months because there is no restaurant then. But my manager, Felipe, who's right up there by the bar, Felipe says that for every review that we get on TripAdvisor that mentions my name, Jorge, I get a paid day during those months that we're closed. I get one paid day for every review that positively mentions my name. So it's been a terrific serving you. Uh, if you would like to leave a review, I'd sure appreciate it. And gave every single person a business card with a URL of their page and his name. And I said, guess what? You came to the right table because <laughs> we just wrote a whole book about this. And there's like 30 of us here who are in this business. Uh, so that guy got like a month off uh, the next year because of, uh, <laughs> of my team. Uh, but that's the way you get reviews. If you can... If you can uh, personalize it and humanize it, that's the best way to do it. Second best way is through some sort of messaging app. You've also been banned from that restaurant by the manager. From, Probably. From, from here yeah. on in. Actually, no. We've been back the last two years. So I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they forgot it was us. But uh, yeah. Um, just quickly on that, the, one of the pushbacks that I hear when it comes to online reviews is the, the ability for them to be able to fake fake them for them to be able to be sure. faked yeah um i don't i don't know if you saw whether you saw that example from vice magazine um mm -hmm. back in 2017 young journalist from vice magazine decided to make his shed the number one rated restaurant right on right. um on trip advisor yeah long story short managed it then had to open his shed up for business it's a great video if anyone wants to check it out online yeah just very quickly, as we as we near to the end, do you have anything when you, when you hear that from people that it doesn't mean anything because they can just be faked? Is there anything that you would say in response? Some are faked, uh, but that's true in a lot of uh, the world in a lot of circumstances. And whether you think they're fake or not is immaterial, because there are dozens, literally dozens of studies that show that ratings and reviews have a massive impact on customer decision making. So if you've got a personal um, kind of axe to grind, that's fine. Uh, and some of your customers do too. There are certainly some customers who don't rely on ratings and reviews because they feel like it's too fake. But that is 
massively the exception that proves the rule. You're talking about last study I looked at, it was five or 6% of consumers don't rely on ratings and reviews because they feel like it's not accurate enough, which means that, you know, 95% of customers do believe reviews. Uh, so I, I would not uh, be very confident in going out on that limb. Who's impressing you right now? What's the who have you come across? What company have you come across that's just nailing talk triggers at the moment? Um, well, what's fun is I've got a brand new show. I don't know if I told you about this or you know, I've got a brand new show called The Talk Triggers Show. And it's a, a weekly program, uh, new episodes every Tuesday. It's on YouTube and also as a podcast. You can find it both ways, audio or audio plus video. And every episode, I tell a story about a business that's doing great word of mouth and has an amazing talk trigger. It's really, really fun. Uh, and it's only like seven minutes long. So it's really tight. And the, the conceit of the episode is that I don't tell you who the business is until the very, very end, until the last like 20 seconds. So you can kind of guess uh, along the way. It's really, really fun. I'm having a blast uh, doing it. It's, it's, uh, it's a really, um, it's just a, it's a, just a cool project. Um, so who is doing it great, uh, with, with talk triggers? And there's so many little examples. I'll think of one that, uh, that, that makes sense sort of at scale so that everybody, um, you know, what? I'll tell you the story because I, I mentioned it in the book and it's still one of my favorites. And people think about that, that word of mouth is, is a B2C construct, right? That, that you can only worry about, uh, customer, conversations if you're consumer facing, but it's the exact opposite. Word of mouth works better in B2B for a couple of reasons. One, word of mouth is relied upon more in B2B. And two, B2B companies are manifestly boring, right? They just have signed a pledge to be boring. And if you're not boring and you do something that is worth conversations, it will absolutely happen. So the one that I'll tell you is, uh, is the story about Windsor One which is the manufacturer of uh, wooden trim boards and such based in California. So they make uh, crown molding and baseboards and chair, chair rails and wainscoting and all that. So their customers are all master craftsmen and, uh, and carpenters and such, remodelers, what have you. Uh, they are their manufacturer, uh, first and foremost. And like a lot of people in manufacturing, they, they have a problem, which is how do you tell your customers about all the different products you make. And they've got a lot of stuff, different colors, different stains, different styles. It's a lot of different options. And, and how do you communicate that? Especially if you're working with contractors. They're not sitting on their laptop all day. They're out in the field using a saw. What they used to do was they would spend a bunch of money. I think it was five, six $600,000 a year, if I recall correctly, in magazine ads, in the trade publications. And each ad was essentially a mini catalog. Like, we make this, and we make this other thing. Look how awesome this is. It's in cherry. Uh, and they did some tracking, as you should, of their ads and their emails and what have you. And nobody was calling. They were making no money off these ads. So they said, well, what if we did word of mouth instead? Now, every single product that they make, every board, has a stamp on the reverse side. It says... Prime all cuts, which is good advice if you're cutting something. And then it says, call Kurt for a shirt. Uh, Toll-free number in the U.S., 888-229-7900. So you get the board, and you're going to cut it because you're on the job. And you got your saw ready, and you're ready. You're all pumped up. He says, oh, prime all cuts. Yeah, thanks. Good reminder. And you're like, wait a second. What's this? Well, who's Kurt? Now I'll give it a shot. I don't know. This is probably stupid, but I'll call you pick up the phone, you dial it, first ring, pick up. Hey, this is Kurt. I'm like, whoa, it's a real guy. Who's this? That's uh, it's Jay Bear. Well, what you doing, Jay? I'm uh, remodeling my house. Ah, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, what kind of products are you working with? Well, I've got this one and this one. Uh, let me tell you about some other stuff you might want to use. Kurt's the head of inside sales, you see. And we get into a whole conversation about the products I'm using and the new products from Windsor One that I might use instead. And then he says, hey, Jay, uh, how fat are you? Excuse me, Kurt? Well, you a fat guy? I mean, kind of. What size shirt do you wear? Like, I'm like an XL. That's great. You, you working by yourself? No, I got uh, two helpers, too. Well, how fat are they? You kind of tell them, oh, I, need a, I need a medium and, and a, another extra large. The next day, I get a FedEx on the job site. Open the FedEx. Inside the box is T-shirts with names on them and right size for me and my whole crew. And then a sample of every product discussed on the call with Kurt. They now spend $0 a year on advertising, uh, have doubled the size of the company. Biggest problem they have now is finding guys named Kurt. And they've given away tens of thousands of T-shirts all over job sites, all across the country. 
shirts typically say got wood or some other kind of funny uh, some other kind of funny uh, saying. Uh, and they just said, look, wh why don't we just turn our customers into our advocates by doing one thing differently? Uh, and they did. So anybody can do this. That's a, you know, an example of a company that has completely transformed themselves uh, based on their talk trigger. I love, love that example. Love that. Thank you. So last question, last question for you. And I feel like, you know, there's a thousand things I could ask as a result of that case study alone. If... If I gave you a stage and a microphone, which I know is a situation you're very used to, and <laughs> in front of you I could I could somehow miraculously put every single person that you would want to influence on this topic, what's the one thing? What's If you could only have them understand one thing, what would it be? It would be that influence is always earned and never claimed. And if you have the patience, the way to earn that influence is through helping, not selling. Jay Bear, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I know that it's been a day of back-to-back -back talking for you today. So thank you for your time and your energy. And yeah, for anyone that's listening, talk triggers. Go and definitely add it to your list. Thanks. And, and the talk trigger of the book is that if you don't like it, Daniel and I will buy you any other book. Totally true. So if you buy it, you don't like it, you let me know. We'll buy you any other book. So far, out of the many thousands of readers we've had, two, two people, you'll like this. First guy emails and says, hey, I didn't like the book. Uh, and we're like, okay, well, why? There were too many case studies. <laughs> I'm like, ha, I hate all that evidence in the book. Uh, so, and he wanted like a $200 book, uh, which I thought was a little bit cheeky. But we said, hey, fine. We sent him the book. That's what we promised. Then just two days ago, second guy uh, he emails us and says, I didn't like the book. Why? Not enough case studies. So there you go. <laughs> the power of reads and reviews. You never know. <laughs> like, well, you, <laughs> you, you can't please everybody. This, uh, that's the lesson. The truest, the truest words ever spoken. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Jay. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that i have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth i hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.